So how are we all doing? We doing good? I'm doing good, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you for responding. I'm doing fine, actually. Uh, it's actually a good thing when I'm doing fine. So before we roll into it, let's just uh, start with a word of prayer, shall we? God, we acknowledge that you are Lord of heaven and earth, and the fact that you even listen to us is actually more than what we can even bear. The fact that you would extend to us the privilege of entering into your presence and singing our praises to you, even however weak they may be, is overwhelming at times. But thank you for the truth that we have sung and the truths that have touched us deep within our beings and that remind us that it's your reality and your kingdom that actually matters. God, I, I would ask that today as we study your teachings. I ask for those who don't believe in you then, that they would not walk away today without some sort of supernatural way in which you would reach down and grab a hold of them. And that would cause them to walk out of here different than when they walked in. That they would be made aware of the reality that they may not have known about. And for the rest of us committed to following Christ, we ask that we would deal honestly with what's in our heart. That your spirit would clean us out of all the junk that we have accumulated this week and that we would walk in wholeness and health with you. And in Jesus' name, all his disciples said, Amen. So, been able to get away and just uh, enjoy some time with my family, um, and my younger two guys, and uh, just, I think it was probably the longest time I've ever been literally unplugged, and I have to be honest, it was totally refreshing. Um, just to throw something out there, I've been reading the book by uh, Metaxas on Martin Luther, and it is absolutely phenomenal. For all you readers and you like biographies, pick up Martin Luther's biography by Metaxas, and uh, you will not be able to put it down. For the rest of us this morning, you just want to maybe open your, your, your eye Bibles, your iPhones, your eyelids specifically, and uh, let's jump into the book of Matthew. Um, as we have been basically for the last year or so, and right now we're looking at the parables of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and, and so the first question is, do you know what a parable is? And uh, they're basically simple stories that are used to illustrate a lesson, and some of the most well-known books are parables. Uh, if you would, the richest man in Babylon, the one-minute manager, who moved my cheese, the greatest salesman in the world, common books out there in the business world. Um, uh, popular parable, so to speak, rather than simply stating the fact these stories, when we begin to read them, force us to analyze and even internalize what their lessons are. And so most of you have probably heard or even grown up with Aesop's fables, and you know, you can tell a child a fable and you point them to the moral of the story, but a parable is like a fable in that it, it has... Uh, a moral or message behind it, and sometimes even more than one. But parables are, are really almost true to life. And the power of the parable comes from the fact that you recognize, you know, that's the way it is in real life when you hear this parable. So uh, these stories are a great way to teach religious or spiritual lessons, and some you know, found them a great way also to teach business and financial lessons as well. So reading the stories, when we take a look at Scripture and you open your Bible in the New Testament, you open it to Matthew, and you see that reading the stories focus us to think about lessons 
rather than just having information handed to us on a silver platter. And I think that when, you know, we interpret the lessons, when we take the scripture and we begin to work it through, we feel a little bit more clever at times, and uh, they stick with us a whole lot more. And sort of by the same token, they're not really hidden. It's, it becomes open, and it's pretty obvious, and, and sometimes you don't have to do a whole lot of work to extract what the story's really saying to us. But for me personally, I feel that when we do work, when we actually spend the time to understand what Scripture is saying, the morals of the story, the, the meaning behind it begins to resonate with us. And hopefully when we begin to do our study, when we begin to try to understand Scripture, we're more likely to internalize those things and act upon them. And so a parable in itself is designed to teach a lesson through, in some cases, comparison. Uh, when you hear the story, you're supposed to relate it to your own life. So remember that. And so if you were here the last few weeks with uh, Pastor Jordan Michalski, Pastor Jordan uh, McClellan, they're teaching uh, on the parables. You're supposed to, where are you in the story becomes the biggest question. Where, where, how do you relate it to your own life? And if it conveys its message of truth through some sort of analogy or comparison or contrast, how do you pull it together? If you were to take some time, you just Google parable. Most of the results will actually involve Jesus in one way or another. So for me in my study, and uh, this is where my focus is, what I've learned about parables, uh, the parables of Jesus, is that we always need to approach the text in, in a series of specific ways. But we also need to approach it with a number of questions. With the biggest question being, when you re read or hear a parable being told, it is, who are you in the parable? Who are you... In the story? Biggest question. So Jesus is the greatest teacher ever, without question, bar none. And he had amazing truth. He wanted to tell people what was going on. He wanted people to know who God was. He wanted people to know what God was like and what life was like in his kingdom. And so most of the time, uh, the truth that Jesus wanted to teach was very different than what the people had already believed. And so Jesus wanted to change the way that people thought. So Jesus taught these truths in a way that, in some cases, people would understand. He taught in parables. These little stories, they had a deeper meaning of truth. They, they used common, everyday people and everyday situations to teach uh, things that are maybe difficult to understand. And let's modernize it today. It would be like a kindergarten teacher saying, you know, five minus one equals four. But, and that's the truth. That's the way it is. But for a young child who doesn't really understand uh, subtraction, they might say, well, if I had five apples on my desk and Sam ate one of my apples, now I have how many left? The story about the parable could be about subtraction or maybe Sam's eating habit. We're not quite sure. But who are you in the parable? Are you the teacher? Are you the apple? Are you the subtraction? Are you Sam? Like, who are you and how do you figure it out? And Jesus used parables and to teach spiritual truth in a way that people can understand and remember and identify with. So sometimes the people, especially the Jewish leaders, were very stubborn. We see that in Matthew. They didn't want to hear the truth. And when Jesus told the truth using his story, they couldn't really argue with him. And for example, instead of saying, you know, your behavior is wrong, Jesus would turn around and he would tell a story about their actions. And each person listening then would begin to figure out how it applied to their own life. Who are they in that story? What's Jesus talking about? Who is he talking about? 
So Jesus told many parables about what the kingdom of God is like. And the kingdom of God is very different from this world. And Jesus wanted people to know how wonderful the kingdom of God is. And so they would want to be a part of it. And so Jesus told his disciples that it's through parables that they've been given this chance to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Now, parables are also told in a historic context. And they're often stories based on um, agricultural life that was intimately uh, familiar to uh, Jesus' original first century audience. They got it when he was talking about it. And some aspect of a... um, unfamiliar concept like the kingdom of God was compared to something with everyday life. Uh, And why? Well, he wanted it to be easily understood. And so Jesus draws on culture. Jesus draws on historical events and all those things around. And for example, when he talks about the parable of the nobleman giving his servant 10 minas in, in Luke 19 and then going away to receive a kingdom, there was an actual event that actually took place Uh, Only a few years before with uh, Archelaus, he received his rulership from Judea from his father Herod, and this is the politics about it. But before he could take over, he had to go to Rome, he had to be confirmed by Caesar. So there could be these historical analogies that Jesus is sort of drawing back and forth. But when we open the scriptures and we begin to read them, we need to look at the immediate context. What is going on in the text before and after the parable? What has just happened? What was just said before you start reading the parable? Did, did, the, did Jesus perform a miracle immediately before or maybe after the parable? Did, did that miracle illustrate the truth in the parable? And so in Matthew, for instance, the pattern is to recount two signs immediately before or after the, the sermon. If you can check out the context, it's going to help you understand the main point of the parable. And that's where we find ourselves. Matthew chapter 13. You know, again, when you look at these parables, is there a problem with the parable that prompted the parable to be taught? When Jesus told the parable, he was either dealing with a question or attitude, and many times he was dealing with both at the same time. The question might be spoken or unspoken. Uh, You know, after all, remember, Jesus, you know, he could read minds. He He is the Son of God. Or he might be just dealing with a bad attitude. And we have to examine the context to see if a question was asked or implied. We need to see if there's an attitude that needs to be dealt with regardless. So who are you in the parable? For example, if the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons of Luke 15... It reveals that the Pharisees, when you study it, you see the Pharisees were upset with Jesus for receiving and eating with sinners and tax collectors. They were choked. The problem dealt with the parables that follow were that the unasked question that Jesus was going at was, what is God's attitude towards sinners? That's what the parables were all about. But who are you in the parable? And the bad attitude of the Pharisees, self-righteousness, and the condemnation of others begins to stand out. And so Jesus then begins to shock his audiences with these simple little stories. And he points out the hypocrisy of these particular groups, uh, these religious leaders. You know, and if you don't understand the question, you can't come up with the right answers. And so these parables that Jesus is using to teach are trying to make a point. They answer a question, they deal with the problem, and we have to take some time and take a look at them. So what's their purpose? You know, they're they're told so that only those who really care will come to know the truth. Isn't that interesting? 
They're told so that only those who really care will come to know the truth. And it's not so much that they understand the parable, but because they care enough to ask what it means after the story is finished. And they hang around long enough to have it explained to them. The others don't really care and they just leave. See, a couple of weeks ago, Jordan Michalski, he addressed the, the, the fact that the disciples didn't understand the parables. And so they asked Jesus what it meant after the crowds left. And the disciples had these soft, open hearts. They were teachable. They wanted to know what Jesus was saying to them. So understanding is this issue of the heart. And those who had a hard heart also had closed eyes, closed ears, and they didn't understand. And so what Jesus does is he addresses that. And it actually seems a little conflicting and confusing in the scriptures. And so he speaks in parables, and he meant to flash them into people's mind, these little stories, these little snippets to illuminate the truth of God, to try to, you know, jumpstart you. And so in many eyes, though, Jesus, he saw this dull comprehension, if I could put it that way. You got to picture Jesus teaching these throngs of people, and he's looking over them, and he sees people who are blinded by prejudice, deafened by wishful thinking. Too lazy to even think. And he turns to his disciples and he says to them, he says, you know, basically, do you remember what Isaiah once said? And he said that when he came with God's message to God's people, Israel and his day were so dully under, ununderstanding that, you know, you would have thought that God would have shut, instead of opening their minds, would have shut their minds. And, I, and you wonder whether or not Jesus felt the same way. And, and when we look at the context, you realize that Jesus is not explaining himself in frustration or anger or bitterness or exasperation. He's saying it with a, a, a wistful longing, if I could put it that way, of frustrated love. The sorrow of a man who has a tremendous gift to give freely to people, but they're just too blind to take it. And this is what Jesus finds himself. If you were to read this you, and you look, after, uh, look at how Jesus begins to explain what he's talking about to the disciples, he's not doing it with a tone of bitter exasperation, but a tone of regretful love. I just wish these people would get it. And it sounds very different. It will tell us not of a God who deliberately blinds people, and that's how some people have explained parables. You know, Jesus was, uh, you know, the God was deliberately blinding people to hide his truth, but of people who were so dully uh, uncomprehending that it, it seemed no use even for God to try to penetrate the iron cur curtain of their own lazy incomprehension. And that, and that, for me too, as a pastor, when I look at our society and see just how biblically illiterate we are, drives me crazy. Open your Bible, study, understand, embrace what's being said to you. And remember the context Jesus is talking about. He's got a number of people around him having hard hearts. They couldn't hear Jesus' words because they wouldn't listen to their words. They couldn't see who Jesus was. They couldn't see that he was the Messiah. Therefore, they couldn't see the kingdom had come upon them. And when we understand this, the miracles then that start to follow involve the restoring of sight to the blind. It takes on a whole new significance. They had become physical symbols of the spiritual blindness of Israel. And so Jesus tells these parables, and in some respects, it sort of hides the truth from those who have hard hearts. Those who don't want to hear the truth. Those who don't 
want Jesus as their Messiah. They're not looking for that type of Messiah. They want a different type. They want a political one. They want one who's going to overthrow the Roman kingdom. They would one who would come in and defeat their earthly enemies right there. But he's sort of hiding the truth from these hard-hearted people. But he's also revealing the truth to those who had open hearts and those who are willing to accept the truth, even if it's not what they expected. And you see that when Jesus is talking to his disciples and explaining things as they go along. Matthew 12, 24. Just before we jump into Matthew 13, Matthew 12, 24, the religious leaders, we went through this. They accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. This is the climax of the rejection of the leadership of Jesus. And so now we move into Matthew 13, and Matthew 13 is now the hinge. It's on the, the hinge in the literary structure of this book. Um, it's a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew 13, Jesus begins talking about the mystery of the kingdom by, by telling parables, right? The parable of the sower. And Jesus asked, the disciples asked Jesus, why are you speaking in these parables? And he answers that he's revealing the mysteries of the kingdom. And that's interesting. In Matthew 13, there's eight parables there. And six begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. Today we look at the mustard seed. This parable is also found in Mark and in Luke, but remember the context to which Jesus is speaking now. Remember the context in which Matthew is writing his gospel, his letter, this book that you're reading. It's written to a very specific audience. And for Jesus, there's, there, he's got this small band of genuine followers around him. He's just been rejected by the religious leaders of the day. He's begun this public ministry, and he's out in open air, and he begins now to literally turn his face towards Jerusalem where he's about to be crucified and ri rise again. And Matthew's writing the gospel. He's telling the story. And, and he's telling the story. Remember, his recipients, this is post-Jesus, post-resurrection. His recipients are a small, persecuted, fledgling church, mainly of Jewish believers. And so Matthew's writing to this small, insignificant, at least to the Roman Empire world around, but he's recounting these words of Jesus as a means of encouragement. So, Jesus told him another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it's the largest garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. I call it the parable of Penny. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all the dough. And if you know Penny and dough, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. That must have drove some people absolutely bonkers. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now, before we consider the meaning of the two parables, let's, let's go back for a moment think through the story of Jesus from a broader point of view because we need to do this. 
because it's sort of explained when you take all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you put them all together, it sort of works together. And, and it's also verified by the rest of the New Testament. So we know that Israel did not, as a nation, turn to Jesus as God's Messiah. We know that, right? That the nation, in essence, actually rejected him, agreeing with his crucifixion. We, we know that we see that. We know that Jerusalem was destroyed and that the nation was scattered, not to be brought back to the land until a number of years ago. And, 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 and they're still in a state of unbelief so far as Jesus is concerned. We know that the Jews rejected the, the grace of God and that the gospel has subsequently and consequently gone out to the Gentiles. And that God is now, as we see it, is working through the church rather than through Israel. Remember, Israel was established so that they could be the light to all nations. Well, that hasn't really happened. So Jesus and his message, uh, which Israel's rejected, some of the Gentiles, a few of the Jews have believed and they now carry that message on. And so this first parable about the mustard seed, you know, you hear the word mustard, you probably think of that spicy yellow stuff you put on the hot dog. Well, that's the same kind of mustard. That's what we're talking about. People use mustard as a spice. And when they grind up mustard seed, they mix it with water or with vinegar. We have ketchup's best friend. That's just the way it goes. Some people believe that the, the first people to make prepared mustard were the Romans. And so it's actually quite possible that Jesus enjoyed mustard on his falafel. And... Um, I'm just putting it out there. I don't know if it's true or not. But this, this mustard seed growing into a tree is not an overstatement by Jesus. The mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds. not the smallest, but it's one of the smallest seed. And when it's planted in the ground, it actually grows up into this incredibly huge plant. And it can grow up to be about 12 feet tall. And it can look more like a tree than a plant. And Jesus said even the birds come and rest or nest in its branches. However, the context of the chapter, remember, chapter 13, Jesus places the emphasis on the action of somebody, on an individual that we call the sower. Remember, the parable of the sower, the man cast his seeds, and they fell on certain grounds. You re read that at the beginning of the chapter. As you keep moving on, we see there's another where there's this, the, the wheat and the, the weeds, and they're together. Well, how did they end up? It's about the sower. This guy is sowing something. Now, again, we come in. <clears throat> Here's the sower again. And what's he planting? He's planting a mustard seed. Interesting stuff. He casts it into his garden. The understanding is that the, the, the sower doesn't sit down on all fours and, and plants the seed. The understanding of the scripture is that he casts it. He throws it. Much like in the first uh, parable of this chapter. I'm inclined to think that it's maybe he's, he's like throwing it in with compost in the garden, not really caring, but knowing it's there. And Jesus' hearers would have been alerted uh, to something, you know, because he didn't, it appears that he doesn't intend for a tree to grow where he threw this seed. Surely not a mustard tree. So his hearers have been alerted that, you know, not necessarily nothing was wrong, but it, what Jesus is saying is true. Yeah, if you plant a mustard seed, you come back in about a year's time, very short time, you're going to have a bit of an issue going on here. I hope you're aware of that. And so this is Jesus' way of addressing the people who didn't care to hear the truth and toss it aside. In spite of their disregard for the kingdom, that truth, if the kingdom is like a mustard seed and you plant it, it's going to take root, and it's going to flourish. So now we have to break it down. What's Jesus saying? The seed starts out very small, but that little, small, tiny seed is so very powerful. 
And within the seed is the ability to grow an enormous plant. And, uh, you know, for us, it would be like the parable of the acorn and the oak tree. You have this small little acorn that hurts when it falls, right? Hits you on the head. But when, it, when you plant it, it grows into this massive oak tree. That's the same thing. The growth is slow. It's steady. And if you look at it every day, you're not going to see a whole lot of change. But if you planted the seed, you walked away, <clears throat> came back one year later, you'd see a huge change. The seed would be this enormous plant bearing fruit, providing a place for rest for the birds. Just try to imagine a plant 12 feet tall, many feet wide, packed into a tiny seed. Now that's one powerful seed. That's one crazy mustard bush. So how is that like the kingdom of God? That's what Jesus is saying. This is like the kingdom of God. Well, we can look at this parable in two ways. The big picture... This parable explains the kingdom of God worldwide and also on a more personal level explains the kingdom of God within each believer. Who are you in the story? Remember, Matthew's writing his gospel to the church. After Jesus' death and resurrection, a handful of disciples are left to spread the gospel of the kingdom. They were that tiny seed. In the huge population of the entire world, they are just but a speck. They would know that Zechariah 4.10 says that we're not to despise the small things, but just like that mustard seed, they were filled with hidden power. They had God's Holy Spirit in them. And so the seed looks small, the seed looks insignificant, just as the kingdom of God may look small or may look insignificant, but it's not going to stay that way. And the significance is interesting because it's not measured in numbers or size. The disciples, they traveled throughout the, and they taught more and more people. And as they did that, more that the kingdom began to grow. The worldwide kingdom grew and grew. And just like that mustard plant produced more seeds for planting, the disciples made more disciples. And the disciples made disciples, and they made disciples, and they made disciples, just like that mustard plant grows tall and wide. And the kingdom of God began to spread in absolutely every direction, and God's kingdom continues to grow to this day. And the truth of the kingdom will be preached to all nations. This is what's happening. So those listening or hearing what Jesus is saying, or maybe reading Matthew's gospel, this picture of birds coming to roost in the branches of trees would have jarred them. They understand it. We don't get it. But they would say, you know, birds, like, and especially if they have this Jewish background, you know, birds in the Old Testament, especially in Ezekiel and Daniel, spoke of Gentile nations. That was the equivalent. So if they knew the Old Testament, and, and, and Jesus is talking about birds now coming and nesting, they're, they're putting the two together. And he's hinting that this, not only will this little seed grow into this remarkable size, but its branches will spread beyond the narrow confines of Judaism and provide homes for the Gentiles as well. And so here Jesus speaks of the, the spread of the kingdom of God beyond the Jewish people to the Gentile nations. This little seed, this little moment just grows out of control the kingdom of God is like when he taught this parable God's kingdom on earth consisted only of when you think about it just a few ragged fishermen but in time that kingdom has grown to reach nearly every single nation in our world it has grown just as Jesus said it would and many of you are part of God's kingdom you're like one of the buds on these huge, this huge plant. And God has used many of you to spread his kingdom when you think about it. 
and he'll continue to use you at home, at school, and even around the world. And like a mustard plant that grows and grows, God's kingdom will continue to grow until Jesus returns. Isn't that fantastic? This is a, 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 a parable of encouragement. The parable of the mustard seed also describes how God's kingdom grows in each life of the believer. If you're a believer, his kingdom is like that mustard seed working within you. When a person puts their trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and begins to live inside of them. And this, this is similar to the mustard seed being planted in the ground. No one can maybe see it from the outside, but it's definitely there. God is definitely at work in our lives. And at first, the believer may not even feel different. You know, I've, had, I've talked with people whose lives just, you know, they accepted Christ. It was just bang. Others, it was like, oh, no big deal. But, but something has started. And at first, you may not even feel different, you know, becoming a believer. But the Spirit is powerful. And it has the power to transform people. Just like the seed has the power to produce this huge plant, the full-grown plant produces good things. It makes the branches that are good for the birds to rest on, and it makes mustard seeds that are good to eat. Yes, especially hot mustard with beef brisket and onions and tomatoes and buns, and it's time to go to the carvery for a sandwich. And it makes more plants, and it just continues to spread. And likewise, the Holy Spirit produces good things in each believer. The spiritual fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But that's not all. The Spirit brings forgiveness. The Spirit brings healing. The Spirit brings righteousness. The Spirit brings glory. It brings grace. He brings compassion. He brings knowledge. And He brings truth. That's awesome. But that's God's work in us as believers. And like a plant, growth is sometimes slow for some of us, is it not? You might not see changes in your life overnight, but in a year's time, with the influence of the Holy Spirit, you know, you're going to see that your life has grown greatly. Maybe you don't see it, but maybe others around you do. You know, in a few years' time, the results might amaze you. The person will be very different, you know, from when you first began. Your beliefs, your attitudes, your actions will no longer be ruled by your own thoughts and your own feelings. They're gonna be, you're going to be led by the Holy Spirit. As you let him speak to you, as you read his word, as you begin to live the life that Christ has asked us to live. You, you know, take a look at a huge mustard plant. Try to imagine all those leaves and flowers and branches packed into a tiny seed. It just makes no sense. Now let's imagine something even more amazing. If, if you put your trust in Jesus, all the good things of God's kingdom are packed inside of you. Have you ever thought about it that way? All the good things of God's kingdom are packed inside of you. Close your eyes. Try to imagine God's love. Try to imagine joy, peace, forgiveness, healing, righteousness, glory, grace, compassion. So much more packed inside of you with this Holy Spirit. It's there. And by God's amazing grace, and I can't figure it out, but those things begin to grow in you a little by little by little. And it will take more than a week. It takes more than just a month. But in a few years, if you depend upon the spirit inside of you, you will be amazed as to how much the kingdom has grown in your life. 
And before you know it, without any warning, you'll be bursting with kingdom fruit. These are the people you want to hang out with. And you begin to bring, uh, live your life to bring honor to God, to the king. And you begin to focus your life on how to grow the kingdom far beyond yourself. Because it's not about you. And then Jesus told another parable that was very similar. The kingdom of, of heaven is like yeast. And he said, Penny mixed it into a large amount of flour. And the yeast worked its way all through the dough. When you read about yeast in the, in the scriptures, in Judaism, yeast actually has bad press. It's negative in some respects. You know, throughout scripture, we see yeast is used as a symbol of evil. But not in Jesus' story here. Uh, you know, at, at Passover, if, if you know anything about the Jewish tradition, all the yeast or the leaven, right, had to be removed from a household. They had to get rid of absolutely everything before the Passover could be celebrated. They had to clean uh, spotlessly. So Jesus' hearers would have been surprised to hear him say, well, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like yeast. Maybe that's how the followers of Christ were viewed by the religious leaders. We're not quite sure. You know, the yeast had to be removed from the house. We've got to get rid of these religious nuts, these guys who follow Jesus. They're yeast. You know, after all, the disciples, they were uneducated fishermen, tax collectors, they, they freely associated uh, uh, with drunkens, drunk, drunkards and sinners, right? Not to mention prostitutes, you know, who, who Jesus allowed to come and wash his feet. You know, worst of all, when you think about it from a Jewish perspective, you know, he had women disciples. You've got to be kidding me, really? Something that no self-respecting rabbi would have done. And so maybe yeast wasn't really a surprise after all when Jesus starts talking and his listeners are listening but who are you in the story so jesus tells him that penny took the yeast and mixed it into a large amount of flour the original uh says three measures of flour which would be equivalent somewhere between 40 kilograms or 60 to 80 pounds of flour so imagine 60 to 80 pounds of flour that's enough to feed a lot of people so this is no ordinary amount of flour. It's no little cup. Or it's, it's an industrial amount of flour. The amount of flour is in contrast to the amount of yeast. And so yet, without the yeast, the making of the bread would not happen. You need that yeast to get into the bread and to expand the bread, and you have fish, fresh-baked bread. But this small amount of yeast is hidden. It's, it's kneaded into the flour, as they say. It permeates right through all of the flour, and it transforms all of the dough. It's, it is this transforming act that Jesus emphasizes to his hearers. And hence he says, the woman hid the yeast in the dough. It's works which are unseen to the human eye. You don't see it. It's all unproportioned in its size. It only takes a little amount of yeast, especially in relation to the flour. And so Jesus reminds them that the work of the kingdom of God in their lives and in the life of the community, often goes unnoticed by human eyes. Did you hear what I just said? That the, the work of God in our lives and in our community often goes unnoticed by human eyes. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like, we do this work that often goes unnoticed by human eyes. 
and that God, since the start of creation, has been, uh, been working his, his yeast into the dough of the world. And one day it will become apparent in my life and in the life of this community. And one day that bread is going to rise. It just takes time. It just takes work. And you know, if you put yeast into unground wheat, it has no effect at all. You just got stuff that just sits there. There's got to be flour. There's got to be water and yeast for the the transformation to take place. And the message of Jesus, that this yeast similarly will have no spiritual effect whatsoever in the life of one whose heart has not been broken or humbled before God. And we need that in our lives. We need God to come in and to be the sower, to be the baker in our lives. And that dough needs to be kneaded and it needs to be moistened and worked. And the the yeast needs to be worked into every area of the dough to have a maximum effect. And the same is true for the kingdom of God. If it's to come to full fruition in our lives and mind, God needs to work in us. And the word of God must be allowed to work into every area of our lives and so that Jesus' message can have an effect in every area of our lives and not only just limited areas in which we let him. No, it's like yeast. You, you put the yeast in the dough. That's it, man. It's, it's happening. And when the woman hides the yeast in the heart of the flower, it's with an intention. She did it purposely. Why? So that she can transform that dough. And the same is, the tr- is true of the gospel message, the message of Jesus. We hide it in our hearts with the intention, not for secrecy, but for transformational purposes, that when we allow Jesus to begin to work in us, it spreads not only through us, but to those around us. And so when the gospel comes into our hearts, it begins to work a change. Not in the substance of the heart. The dough remains the same, but it's the quality. It makes us want to savor things, which maybe we've rejected or ignored before. It works through all areas of our lives. It transforms the things in which we touch. It, the change is such that it makes the soul partake of the word, just as the dough partakes of the yeast. We get hungry for the word of God. And, and that, that transformation, again, is unseen. It's secretly lasting so that the effect that Jesus has, it's his grace in our lives and our grace acted out towards others. It changes us. It transforms us. It takes on the likeness of Jesus. This is what he's talking about. This is the encouragement. Something so small is a world changer. Something so small is a world changer. And so in each of these, the mustard and the yeast, Jesus wants his hearers to understand the significance which the world views as insignificant. You are nothing is what the world tells us. But he wants them to understand the paradox of the insignificant or the hidden beginnings in a triumphant climax. The world says you're nothing, but you are something. You are something. He's impressing upon his listeners that the mustard seed has been planted, the yeast has been mixed in the dough, and the transformation is now going on. And even if they and the world fail to see it, it's happening. It's there. It may be hidden right now, but it's there. And no matter how unpromising it looks, despite the opposition, it will face the transformation and it will come to pass. God is at work in our world. And little is great where God is at work. Little is great where God is at work. And for us, I think the lessons are simple. We don't despise the small things. 
Sometimes things that start out small end up really huge and out of control, right? One small thing like a mustard seed or, or yeast can affect everything around it in a big way. Don't despise the small things. You know, it's, oh, that's not really a big deal. No, don't. It is a big deal. You have no clue what the ramifications are of something. We shouldn't despise the small things in our lives or in the lives of other people. Numbers are really no measure for success in the kingdom of God. When you think about it, on one night Charles Spurgeon was converted, probably one of the greatest preachers ever to live. There were only 10 people in that church. When you think about it, Jesus only had 12 disciples, but they grew to 120, uh, all who fitted into one room on the day of Pentecost. But from these, from those people, when the Holy Spirit poured out over him, the gospel has reached around the globe. And the message of life transformation is so empowering, and it started so small. The gospel begins small in all of our lives, people. It may be an invitation to a church service or some sort of event. It may be just an act of kindness that has brought us this far. But each of us should remember that uh, and, and also remember the potential significance in the lives of others of the small things done for the sake of the gospel. Small things like saying, would you like to come to church with me? Well, I, nobody wants. No, would you like, you have no clue the power of that small little question. You have no clue that if somebody responds, you have no clue the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives if they make a decision. Each of us should remember the small things we do for the gospel. The plant, you plant the mustard seeds and watch the phenomenal growth occur. Sometimes we get discouraged, you know, we're trying to live out our kingdom life as Christians, right? Sometimes it seems like nobody notices when we do the right thing. Sometimes we don't feel like we're producing enough fruit, right? Sometimes it seems like people don't want to hear the truth about Jesus, and we get discouraged. These parables need to encourage you so very much. You know, we might not be able to see the growth of the kingdom every day, but it is growing both in the world and in the hearts of people. And you need to hold on to that and you need to believe that. We could not stop the growth of God's kingdom any more than you can you take the yeast out of a batch of dough. You just can't do it. You can't force a mustard plant back into its seed. You know, listen to the promise Paul wrote to his encouraged friends. He says, I'm certain that God who began the good work within you he began it in you. He began it in you. He began it in you. He began it in you and in you and in you. That's what he's saying in yous and yous. He began it in you. We'll continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. In other words, you're germinating and it ain't going to stop. Isn't that encouraging? You're German and God has done a work in you. He began. This promise applies to each person who belongs to the kingdom of God. God always keeps his promises. God will grow his kingdom in the believers and around the world. We just need to be moving on it. And God can use people. He can use circumstances that seem hopeless, that seem insignificant, that can bring about amazing results. And when God is involved in something small, it can be transformed into something great. It's not about us. It's all about him. You know, a mustard seed was this expression of the time to signify something small or something of very little significance. 
And if you were to look at that mustard seed, you would think that nothing would really come out about it. But the kingdom principle is here. And what does that mean? In God's kingdom, people, situations, circumstances are not limited how they appear in the natural. We see God using Gideon and 300 men to defeat an army. Moses, a man of stuttering speech to lead a nation. Jesus feeding 5,000 with what? Two fish and five, the five loaves. I could go on and we could look at these circumstances and situations that seem small and destined for insignificance, but they all had one common factor, and this is the beauty of it all. The one common factor is that God was involved. Is God involved in your life? When you look and you read the parables, Where are you in the story? Where is God in your story? Where is God in our lives? And we are living members of God's kingdom here on earth. And the things that we do, the things that we say, our circumstances, when done according to the will of God, are subject to this principle. Before a seed grows, it needs to be planted. The field was the sower's area of influence. When you think about it, he decided what to be planted there. The sower just didn't go out and wait for something to grow. That's me. That's my gardening thing. You know, Jordan, when he was living with us, now he's married. You know, so they move out. I don't know why. But he had these garden boxes, and he would tend to them religiously. He would be germinating seeds and putting them in the window, and he would look at them like crazy. And some of you are crazy gardeners like that. You get it. You know what I'm saying. We have Will the farmer. He's so much like that. You guys understand that. But you have control over what you plant, do you not? And if you want something to grow that looks nice, you have to choose to plant it. If you want your garden to bear fruit like strawberries, you need to plant and to look after them. And in due time, you can pick the fruit and enjoy it. And I did that in the back of my garden. I had strawberries this year. Okay, I had three. But it doesn't matter. I still had strawberries. That's awesome. Like how many of you garden? Your garden is your area of influence. You control it. You know, just like your garden, each of us has our own area of influence when you think about it. Think of the people you deal with. Think of your family. Think of your friends. Think of your church people. Think of your workmates, your schoolmates. These are all areas of your influence. And each time you see them, each time we have interaction, you have the opportunity, when you think about it, you have the opportunity to sow something into somebody's life. Isn't that amazing? You do. Well, how do you do this? Your actions, your words, your attitudes, you keep them biblically based. And if we do this, the the potential there is to see godly fruit in these people's lives. That's just amazing. Isn't it? Like, am I the only one who gets excited about the fact of the potential that God has placed within all of us? That we can actually transform the world in which we put it? It seems like it's a a task that's so overwhelming that, yeah, I feel like a mustard seed, but the possibility is still there. And what causes the seed to grow? Well, the answer is water and sunlight, but ultimately it's God. God is the one who causes the seed to grow. The band can make their way up here. The farmer can't make it grow. The sower doesn't make it grow. God causes the smallest, think about it, the most insignificant seed to grow into something that is the biggest and greatest tree. There is no limit with God. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted the seed. This is Paul writing. 
He goes, I planted the seed, Apollos water it, but God made it grow, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. That's refreshing. That takes the pressure off. That if I just do what God has asked me to do, he is going to do the rest. Spurgeon, he said, do what you do thoroughly, pray over it heartily, and leave the result to God. And he believed that God could take whatever we do as Christians, no matter how small, and and turn it into something great. And we each have our parts to play. And as believers, we become anxious uh, over things that really aren't our responsibility. I know I do. Like if nobody responds to my evangelistic message, you know, I can get down and ask myself, well, where did I fail? How come? How come there's nobody responding? Or maybe I, I offer to pray for somebody and they don't get healed. And now I'm hesitant. Do I get hesitant to pray again? Well, that's not how it works. In the kingdom of God, we have our part, and God has his part, people. And we're not God. God calls us to preach evangelistically, and so we do it. And then we leave the results up to him. It's the Holy Spirit's job who does the convicting of sin. It's not my job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. It's not your job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. God tells us to pray for people if they don't get healed. It could be for a number of reasons, it's, but it's not because you don't have enough faith. Because how much faith does the Bible say you need to have? A mustard seed. Just a little. And so if I just take that little, the rest is up to God. The beauty of it is that I'm just being obedient. Who are you in the story, people? What's God saying to you in your story? What's he saying to you about the mustard seed? What's he saying to you about the sower? What's he saying to you about Penny the baker? Some of you are just getting hungry. Who are you in the story? The beauty of it is that that seed grows into something that brings life. And why would birds now flock to this tree, this mustard bush or whatever? Because it provides shade and protection. Think of the analogy. We could stretch this to say that the tree brings life because without it, the birds would die of exposure and heat. I'm not sure that's stretching it, but if a bird is in a situation where it's hot, what are they going to do? They're going to look for shade, right? They're going to look for protection. They're going to go to a tree that's big enough to protect them with shade and from maybe other predators. So it's not ironic that something so small and and insignificant now is the thing that brings shelter and life to others. I love this parable because that's how God works. There's a part that we play. There's a part that God plays. And as long as we're doing our part and we're sowing seeds in our sphere of influence, God can bring about the transformation and growth. Isn't that amazing? And I want to encourage us to continue to be a part of God's plan to bring life to those around, to sow the seeds, the words we speak, the actions we do, the attitudes we have as representative, as Christ's ambassadors to a hurting world around us that really needs the power and the encounter of Jesus in their lives. And maybe that's just you and you need that power and encounter with Jesus. But just be honest before him this morning because Jesus brings abundant life. And we not, don't lose out by 
we lose out by putting up unnecessary barriers. Oh, I'm not good enough. I don't know that. Come on. No, it's just to see the challenges to watch out and not set up our own prejudice to stop us from seeing and doing the work of Jesus in our lives and the lives of others. We all have our prejudice, let's be honest, right? We all have our things that hinder us from seeing Jesus' work in other people's lives. Well, that's not of God. Really? Are you God? Maybe we have rules and, and regulations about how we think the Holy Spirit should and shouldn't work. Maybe we have legalism. Maybe we're entitled. You know, that tends to be a heavy thing right now. There's a whole lot of killjoy out there. But the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence, and it's different. Love. Are you loving people? Even those that you want to punch? Joy. You have joy. Even in the midst of the toughest time, is there still joy? Do you have peace, people, when chaos is reigning around you? Do you have peace in who Christ is? Is there goodness? Is there kindness? Is there patience? Is there faithfulness? Is there gentleness? Do you have self-control? Heck, we're talking about sexuality on, on Wednesday. Come be a part of it. Self-control. Christian life is meant to be joyful, not heavy. It's meant to be joyful, and it starts small. That's the beauty of it. It starts small, but there's no imagining how big it can get. There's no imagining the influence that you have. And Jesus said that I come that you might have life and life in abundance. And as believers, are we really living like we have this abundant life that Jesus is talking about? Are we putting up these unnecessary barriers? You decide. So go back home this afternoon, pull out, because it's going to rain or snow. I don't care what it does. It's going to be 18 inches regardless. It's coming. And you pull out your Bibles and begin to read. Reread the parable of the sower. Reread the parable of the wheat and the tares. Reread this passage here. And ask yourself, who are you in the story? And what's the kingdom of God like? Because you, and here's the beauty of it, each one of us sitting here has the opportunity and the influence to change the world in which we find ourselves. So just go do it. Just go do it. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your school. Oh, but Jerry, I'm so... Ins no, no, a mustard seed is insignificant and it blows up. Yeast is insignificant and it goes through the whole batch. Go be some insignificance today. Let's pray. God, I, I, we acknowledge we're in desperate need of you. And I have to acknowledge that brokenness is where we, we, we need to live. And so, Lord, we, we want to live in a sense of being disarmed of our pride because we all have it. We're, we're prideful people. All of us have it. So we have a false sense of humility, maybe faulty presentations of pride, whatever it may be. God, we stand before you now just asking you to open us up. God, I pray that you would cover our attempts at holiness and that any ill motive we have would be broken 
as we stand before you because we need the light of Christ to blaze in our lives. And we know that you want the light of Christ to blaze through us. So uproot, Lord, us. Remove the clutter that's in our lives. Break every last one of us. Break us, God, I pray, and replant life. May we start off, even this moment today, and if there's someone here that doesn't know you and wants to open their heart to you, may they start off today as that mustard seed. And God, as believers, I just pray on behalf of our community that you would mold us into what you want us to be and begin this process now. Forgive us for when we've screwed up, but guide us now as we move ahead. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to stand with me. The band's going to lead us out on a song, but before they do, in ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Here it is. May God hold you in the palm of his hand. May you allow him to mold you in what he wants you to be. And now may you joyfully fill the role he has given you and feel peace in your soul. Now go and start like a mustard seed. Be blessed. We'll see you next week.